The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. to have Reverend Luke LeDuc with us this evening. Many of you know Luke. He has preached here before. We were just reminiscing in the robe room before we came out how um, he's been here in Lancaster for 10 years, and we remember that because of a connection that we had that our son Stephen was heading to Tampa to the mother PCA church there. Uh, when Luke was coming up here to Lancaster to take the call as an associate at Wheatland, and I just remember at the time that Luke was very kind in helping our son find a place to live, find an apartment to rent that wasn't far from the church, because I had never heard of YouTube until that year, and that was my first encounter with YouTube, because Stephen showed us that Luke had put on this YouTube, whatever that is, a guided tour of an apartment that he thought would be good for Stephen to rent. And I just thought this was an amazing thing that someone could put a guided tour like he took the video and put it on there. And how does that work? And Stephen rented the apartment, I think sight unseen, because of what Luke had done. Anyway, it's a small world, but um, we're glad that he's been here for 10 years. He's been the associate there for a number of those years and then the senior pastor there for uh, three or four years now. I'm not sure how many, but Luke has been a strong presence in our presbytery um, very solid biblically and theologically. Uh, we've uh, sought his advice about different things, and uh, just uh, we've seen Wheatland flourish as a church under his leadership. So we're so glad that he's been with us locally here. So without any further ado, he's going to speak to us from Psalm 2. Thank you, Luke. That was incidentally the low point and the high point of my real estate career. Now, it was great to get to know Stephen a little bit as, as we were passing ships in the night. Uh, our text this evening uh, comes to us from Psalm chapter 2. It's page 448 in your pew Bible. Let's give our attention to God's word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. 
Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for your majesty, for your glory, for your sovereignty. On this Reformation Sunday, one of the great and precious themes of the work that you did through your servant Martin Luther and through other first-generation reformers was recover this glorious truth of your sovereignty and your King Jesus who reigns over all the earth. Recover something of that for us this evening as we turn our minds and our hearts to hear this psalm and to be comforted and challenged by it. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I understand that my associate preached here last Sunday evening and took a bit of a presumptuous title for his sermon, called it Brevity. And then I think he went five minutes overtime, he told me. So um, I won't be presumptuous with our sermon title this evening. It's the King, and you'll see for obvious reasons. But I do want to be a little bit pres- and presume upon your knowledge of Psalm 1 as we get into the sermon this morning. I'll bet many of you who are here have Psalm 1 memorized. Um, but we're turning our hearts to Psalm 2 that we've just read But it's really the first two chapters of Psalms, the book of Psalms together, that are really an introduction to the the rest of the entire Psalter. It's actually Psalm 1 and 2 together that, in a sense, form for us an introduction to the book of Psalms. And these first two chapters of the book of Psalms are painting for us Uh, this glorious vision that actually, I think, has these resonant echoes of the original beginning of the story of the world that we read about in Genesis 1 through 3. If you're paying attention to what you know of Psalm 1, presuming that you know it, and then Psalm 2 that I've just read for us this morning, if, if you're paying attention, or this evening, if you're paying attention to them as an introduction to just how it is God is at work in his world, you can begin to see the parallels from Genesis. Um, Psalm 1 opens describing the happiness of a man who delights in the law of God. This, of course, has echoes of Adam and then later Adam and Eve together as originally they delighted in God's law by keeping at least for a time God's instructions to subdue the earth and fill it and to exercise dominion over it. The Eden imagery in Psalm 1, if you start to think about, really is unmistakable, isn't it? There's a tree planted by streams of water. And there seems to be this idea of something being driven out of God's presence in chapters 1 through 3 of, 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 of Genesis, when uh, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden in their rebellion. 
and a cherubim was placed there to guard the way to the tree of life. This imagery carries forward into Psalm 1 as it, as Psalm 1 unfolds itself to us as this epic tale between two ways, good and evil, righteous and wicked, a flourishing tree of life or dead, discarded chaff that gets driven out of God's presence. And if Psalm 1 is meant to describe for us the blessed or happy life and how delighting and meditating on the law of God is the way to a flourishing life in the world, then what we've just heard read for us this morning, or this evening, we don't have an evening service at Wheatland, so it's that time aspect. I think you hexed me, John, when you were up here. But Psalm 2, if Psalm 1 is describing this blessed man who delights on the law of God as a way of flourishing in the world, then Psalm 2 describes for us the primary conflict in the story as it will come. And if we're going to understand that conflict, this primary tension that is at the center of our world, then we have to go back to the beginning again, to Genesis 1 through 3. We have to return once more to the Garden of Eden and remember what humans were originally created to do and to be. The beginning of Genesis tells us that humans were created in God's image to fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the world. Humans, both men and women, were created in God's image, and they were created to rule. To be human is to be designed to take control of the created world and to subdue it and to reorder it and to rule over it. Men and women, all of us, naturally are born rulers, To be human is to aspire toward control and dominion over the world and in the world. In the Garden of Eden, while Adam and Eve were created as images of God, it was God's loving and generous rule over all things that they were meant to bring to bear upon this garden and this created order that they'd been placed in. We know this is true because all of the authority that they were given over creation was given to them only as they reflected God's image. There were boundaries placed on what they could and could not eat, if you remember the story. And it it was a gracious and benevolent boundary as every tree of the garden was given them for food except for this one. This was not a capricious God toying with human desire, This was a a loving boundary laid down by God that invited his creation people to live underneath his authority as they exercised authority and loving dominion and brought order to the world. They were meant to be creatively recreative in this endeavor, imitating in miniature and under God's authority, God's own work at creation. And in this way, they would reflect the image of God back into every corner of the world that God had created. A lovely, captivating image. Yet in Genesis 3, there's a crisis in the story. And the crisis in the story, as you well know, turns out to be 
a question of authority and a struggle for autonomy. Did God actually set this boundary? And exactly what was his motive in doing so is the question that Adam and Eve wrestle with. And in the story of Genesis, God gives them freedom and their freedom leads to death and massive destruction in the world. And I think it's that as a background that Psalm 2 opens with. See, the kings and rulers of the earth that we've just read here in verses 1 and following set themselves against God and take counsel together against God's anointed. And as an introduction to the book of Psalms, a way of flourishing in the world, meditating on God's law in chapter 1. This is the way of flourishing, and now in chapter 2. But by the way, here's where you'll have trouble. We learn that the whole story of God rescuing his people and redeeming his world will turn on this question of authority. Terry Lynn and I, my wife, were enjoying a rich and happy season in our life as parents. Our eldest is 17 years old. Um, She is responsible and dependable and mostly always able and eager to take charge over her siblings if Terry Lynn and I want to step out for a bit. Olivia's actually been this way since she was four years old, but having to wait until we were comfortable leaving her alone with the other kids uh, felt like it took forever. It was probably the longest two years of our life. Um, But consider this. If Olivia was given charge over our household for a bit, she's 17, while Terry Lynn and I walk around the corner to a favorite restaurant, the authority that Olivia receives in that situation is a unique sort of authority, isn't it? It is authority to be sure, but it's not autonomy. I hope the difference is clear for us this evening. Authority is something that has been granted to another by one who possesses it, by a greater one who possesses it. Authority is received, but it's never received alone. It comes with accountability to the one from whom that authority was received. Autonomy is different. There is no accountability. There is no outside accountability for autonomy. Autonomy places ultimate accountability in one's own self. Self-governance. In other words, in our absence, though Olivia has received authority... She has not become the one frame of reference who gets to write or establish the rules of the house. She may be seduced by this gift of authority, of course. That happens. She may very well confuse the gift of authority with autonomy. Autonomy may even appear to her and her siblings in that moment to be truer than truth itself. But, despite all appearances that may lead her or her siblings to believe that they are autonomous, it is absolutely untrue. We have left her in charge, but not to do as she pleases. But as the image of our authority in our absence, 
Olivia is only meant to continue the sort of gracious and loving reign that her mother and I have established in the house. That, of course, is my opinion about our parenting. So that if the minute we close the front door behind us on our way out, and Olivia gets out uh, the gin and makes a gin and tonic for herself and plops down on the couch to watch Hulu and ignores her duty to care for her siblings, or worse, serves them all a round of gin and tonics, and they eagerly raise their glasses in toast of their newfound autonomy, and in Olivia's brilliant unseating of those harsh overlords, Olivia has cast off the cords of our authority. She has also unwittingly, perhaps, issued an open challenge to our authority. This has never happened in our family, in case you're wondering, at least not with gin and tonics. But, but this rejection of God's authority and grasping for autonomy is the story of the world. And at some level, perhaps, this is actually all of our stories. And so Psalm 2 begins with this question, why do the heathen rage? and the peoples plot in vain. We're learning right here at the outset as an introduction to how to understand all of the Psalms. We're learning the futility that is wrapped up in that sort of action. This is a question asked out of the psalmist's incredulity at what is going on. Earthly kings and rulers take up positions of opposition and plot together in defiance against Yahweh and against his anointed king, his Messiah. And verse 3 tells us why this rebellion and foment takes place. Look at it in your text. It's in order to step out from under the authority and the power of God. The accountability is not welcome. Verse 3 says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. There was a desire to rule the world, which was a God-given human desire. It's what it meant to be human. But it was a desire to rule the world out from under the law of the Lord from Psalm 1, in a sense. And so this becomes the great conflict of all of history. This conflict that was started way back in the Garden of Eden is right here in Psalm 2. And this conflict, I think if we're honest, is still playing out in our own history. In history in general, it's obvious. But it's also playing out in our own history. Humanity's desire is broken in the fall. Human authority, this rich gift from a loving creator, has been twisted. And it's as if you and I can no longer be satisfied with receiving the gift of authority, but rather we take it one step further and demand autonomy. Psalm 2 is giving us this vision of the world as it really is. It doesn't pull any punches about the geopolitical, cultural landscape and what that means for those who seek to live in obedience to King Jesus and his kingdom that's not of this world. In in just the first three verses, 
we learn what to expect in a world where earthly powers have from the beginning sought to detach from the reality that actually is. God who reigns over all and Christ who is enthroned as king over his world. The real issue at stake here in the first three verses of Psalm 2 is who rules the world. Is it the kings and rulers of the world, or is it God's king, God's anointed one? It's a question that we're still wrestling with, isn't it? But I want us to notice the response to the rebellion from God. I want us to see God's response to this plot of earthly kings and rulers and powers. It says he stays seated. He chuckles, in effect. He mocks their plans with laughter. He doesn't even bother to get up. It doesn't get a rise out of him, in a sense. In verses 4 through 6, as they are in front of you, God simply speaks a word to this world, rising up in autonomy against him. He says to the world that he has installed his king in his place, Zion. In other words, the kingdom of God is not shaken or rattled one bit by the posturing and the plotting of earthly powers. Instead, we're given this glimpse into God's reaction where instead of nervousness or despair, God laughs, then terrifies them the text says, by saying in verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I want us this evening to consider what God's response communicates. All of the raging and plotting and conspiring against God's king cannot undo or overthrow his reign. The righteous one from Psalm 1 is now the royal son in Psalm 2. He's been installed as king, and according to his own report in verses 7 through 9, if you're looking at it in front of you, God has told him that he is now his son, and he is the heir of all things. It goes so far that in verse 8, God tells his son this king, his anointed one, that if he will but ask of his father, he will be given all the nations and all the lands of the earth as his inheritance. And in verse 9, judgment will be brought on those who continue to persist in their rebellion and refuse his rule and reign. Do you hear the reality check that we're getting in this psalm? And I think verses 10 through 12 in front of us are the conclusion, obviously, of Psalm 2 and actually the gateway to the rest of the Psalms, in a sense. Because if the Psalms are this great catalog of what it looks like for humans to be in intimate relationship with the divine, it's here at the end of what we consider the introduction of the Psalms that were given away forward. Listen to verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry 
and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The truth is, these are stern words for kings and rulers and everyone else who fails to recognize and bow before Jesus, God's king. These are words of judgment that echo verse 9, where those who refuse the king will be broken by the king's rod of iron. This is his just and righteous rule over the wicked who refuse to honor God's authority. But I want you to notice that it's not all judgment. In fact, these final verses can be heard as a gracious invitation for kings and rulers of the world, as well as a gracious invitation to us out of all the places of our grasping and striving for autonomy rather than receiving God's authority. Be warned, wise up, kiss the sun. All of this is an invitation to a life of blessing. It's a gracious invitation out of our own destructive autonomy. Autonomy that can only offer us the freedom to die. You see, this King Jesus is offering us the life of his gracious and loving reign. And this helps us to think about the cross in perhaps a little bit different terms than we have been used to thinking about it. The cross and the resurrection are far more than your personal salvation. They are that, and they're not less than that, but they're far more than that. They're the actual, the cross and the resurrection is the actual enthronement of Christ as the world's true king. This was not a private act between you and Jesus, although it is that. This was a public statement of profound implications in his death and in his resurrection Christ has become the world's true king and though in our brokenness and sinfulness you and I will always gravitate toward autonomy we will always be in our in our sinfulness in our twistedness we will always be drawn away from God's authority and into autonomy through his loving sacrifice Christ is reinstating his loving and kind and gracious and legitimate claim as king over the world and over you and over me. Through the cross and the resurrection, Paul will later make this very clear to us. God has stripped Satan and all earthly powers of their claims to authority And Christ the King now reigns far above all such earthly powers. So much so that all things are his, all things are under his feet. This is true. This is reality. And it's becoming truer every day in spite of what appears to be the way the world works. 
And we're waiting for the day when this king will return and put the world back in order under his loving rule and reign. And we're invited this evening to let go of our anxious and empty and death-filled quest for autonomy and find our refuge in Jesus. As one theologian has put it, there is no refuge from Jesus, only in Jesus. And that's what we hear in verse 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But if all of that resonates with you tonight, Christ is king. We are not people of autonomy. We are people of authority. If all of that resonates deeply with you tonight, and you want to offer, except for the fact that you're Presbyterian, you want to offer a big hearty amen to that, I'm with you. But I think that there's one more question out of the text for us to consider. And that is this. If you've got a firm grasp on Christ as king, now the question is, how will you respond in a culture where it seems that every trace of Christ's kingship and kingdom is being systematically removed from every place where his authority was intended to be acknowledged. How will you respond to that? What do you do when you see God's signature and Christ's authority being erased from the very places that only his words of life can bring real healing and flourishing? See, the temptation you will face as Presumably, I'm presuming upon you again, as presumably people who embrace Christ's kingship, the temptation you will face is to see all of this systematic removal of God's authority and live in anxiety and outrage and perhaps even despair at the way the world is conspiring against God's king. But I think the end here of Psalm 2 is charting for us another path. In verse 12, we find our blessedness, literally could be translated our happiness, in taking refuge in this king and son. We have hope for refuge in the Son because the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, has borne the wrath of God upon all those who plotted anarchy and rebellion against Him. And because of this, because this is our King, our gracious King, the King who does indeed rule in spite of all appearances, in spite of all plots, in spite of all raging heathens, because this is our king and head, the church must not be a place of anxiety and outrage and despair. But rather, the church is meant to be a non-anxious, flourishing presence in the world, right in the middle of all of the raging and plotting. And we as the church... It's our first duty to live out this non-anxious presence together in our worship and through our service.
in our worship. We gather to confidently confess together that in spite of what you see around you, Jesus is the world's true king. In our service, we, we ourselves refuse to live grasping for autonomy in any area of our lives, public or private, in imitation of the culture around us. And winsomely and confidently, but firmly, we call all the kings and rulers of the earth to pay their homage to King Jesus. As the psalmist puts it, to kiss the Son. A sign of of, uh, submission and respect. And instead, we offer up our very lives as one church in humble obedience to Christ's authority. That's a tall task for us. It's, we live in a culture of outrage. We live in a culture of anger and despair. And, and when the church is marginalized from power, and when the church is scorned and rejected as irrelevant, how will we respond? We're not to grasp in anger at what we seem to have lost. And we don't, brothers and sisters, give up in despair. We take blessed and happy refuge in the promise of this King who is coming to make all things new. May God give us the faith and the patience and the humility and the courage to live in this present day for that day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, as an introduction in Psalm 2, Psalm 1 and 2, to what it looks like for humans to be in relationship with you in intimate and faithful ways. You have given us deep encouragement, but also a tall task. Father, would you give us the faith and the grace and the strength from your Holy Spirit through the promises of your word to live in these days the reality that Jesus is the world's true king. And in the midst of all of the noise and the upheaval, may we joyfully and confidently and sacrificially remind one another and our world that you are the world's gracious, loving king. Give us the strength to do that. In the name of this king, we ask all this. Amen.